Hey, it's Sunny Days. I am the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Listen, I am a podcast her, okay, H-E-R, an activist, a thought leader, pin pusher, and lover of poodles. And I'm Lisa Davis, MPH. I am a lover of social justice, healthy living, dogs, and I love being the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Now is the time for honest, unfiltered conversations, for authentic voices and their stories, and for connection. Join us as we confront the moment head on with this podcast. It is passionate. It is real as lives behind the headlines. Active allyship, it's more than a hashtag. And listen, it goes beyond the likes, the retweets, and the hashtags, making space for the vital dialogue necessary for racial justice. And now, on to the show. Lisa Davis. And I'm Sunny Days. So glad you're listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. I am geeking out, Sunny, because we're going to be talking about public health. And I know. More. <laughs> I'm such a nerd. I love being a public health professional. I love talking about health education. I love doing health education. And today we've got an incredible guest. Sunny, if you uh, want to tell us about him. Absolutely. So today our guest is Dr. Mark Allen Derry. D-O-M-P-H-F-A-C-O-I. And I'm sure that we will help you understand what all of those acronyms are once we get into this conversation. So listen, Dr. Mark Allen Derry is an infectious disease specialist bordered in both internal medicine and infectious diseases. He has extensive experience responding to global disasters, including Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and the Haiti earthquake in 2010. Dr. Derry has responded to viral outbreaks as well, including working as a clinical epidemiologist for the World Health Organization in Sierra Leone during the historic Ebola virus outbreak in West Africa. Wow. Prior to his work with COVID-19, he was and still is working as an HIV and hepatitis C specialist advocating for health care for all. He is also the founder of the community radio station 102.3 FM WHIV-LP, radio dedicated to human rights and social justice. Help us welcome Dr. Derry. Thank you so much for having me on. The question that we ask every single guest is what were you marinated in? Basically, what helped with your trajectory and helped you become who you are today? That's a great question, and, and uh, I would say punk rock and being and being a musician and punk rock music. Um, as a very young, as a young man, I, I was very lucky to grow up in Los Angeles. We grew up actually on the same street as the bass player uh, from one of the first punk rock bands called the Dickies. The uh, Billy Bass was a bass player, probably inspired me to become a bass player. I play bass now in several bands here in New Orleans. But what inspired me was the um, the energy around equity, uh, the energy around uh, 
uh, working class people demanding better lives, and which is really what the original punk rock movement kind of came out of, was a large sense of dissatisfaction both in the Thatcher era and the Reagan era. But what really, really motivated me more than anything anything else was this idea of two-tone, and this was a subculture of punk rock music that came out of the ska movement. And what happened was they took uh, a lot of this ska kind of music from the early 60s and they energized it with with punk rock and it was a particular anti-racist movement uh and it still is to this day and so those were the things that really motivated me uh you know and in growing and as crazy as this may seem in the early 80s seeing a band like the specials or the english beat with black and white faces on their music videos was so unusual because in America it was either black bands or it was white bands. But to see this coalition together was so important for me growing up. And I've told this to, I know the band leaders, uh, especially the one, uh, the English beat, because uh, he comes into town all the time. Today. And I always, you know, he says to me as well um, that the, uh, that that people tell him that regularly about how you know and it's a shame and it's a really indictment on america and our culture and structural racism that exists within our society and hopefully we'll get to that because that's something i focus a lot on my research but you know for it to have been so normalized in the uk but so you know, like people like myself thought it was so weird or unusual to see it. But if you, it's a great question you should ask. And, of course, look behind me. You can see, I know this is, we're on radio, but, you know, our, we've got the Clashes London Calling sitting right behind us. And so what, what marinated me, there's no question that it was music, my love of music, and my first love for punk rock that was really focusing on equity that really created me and created who I am. And I often say that... Ian McKay is the lead singer and leader of a band uh, called um, Minor Threat and also Fugazi. And uh, he really, I often would say, I often say that what Ian McKay is to punk rock, I am to medicine because he focuses squarely on equity and all issues uh, dealing with equity. So there you go. Well, you know, I just want to jump in real quick because you do this great video series we're going to talk about, you know, to educate folks. And immediately I was like, this is like a punk ska kind of thing on one of, yeah. So anyway, I thought that right away. I love it. I'll tell you real quickly what that story was. So that was the hepatitis C video. And our hep C video, um, the reason we were getting ready to make a video and Liana and I, my wife and our my in-laws, her parents, we were all going to go to, to London uh, in, in October to go see the specials. We wanted to show my in-laws the specials. We wanted to show them, and they were playing. And uh, that's when Delta was at the peak of, of – and my mother-in-law canceled the whole trip. And we had tickets. We had hotels. She's like, listen, we can't go. We can't do this. Like, I just feel like it would be inappropriate for us to go. So we canceled the whole trip, right? So at that point, my colleagues knew that I was so upset about missing it that I was like – Everybody step out of the way. This video is mine, and we're going to make this a love letter to Two-Tone Ska. And that's what that, that, that video was. It was really, really incredible. You know, I'm curious, when you first got interested in public health, like, how did you know that this was, you know, the direction you wanted to go? And also being a doctor of osteopathy? Yeah, it, it, being an osteopathic physician, yeah. Right. I was actually, I didn't know about public health. I was actually trying to avoid going to medical school to be honest. So I had already been accepted to medical school. I had, um, 
had gotten a full scholarship to medical school, and two weeks before I was supposed to start, I more or less got cold feet. There was a, a local school of public health not too far away from where I lived at that time in Los Angeles that was still had this rolling application process. And so I was able to defer my enrollment for one year and then ultimately two years in, in public uh, to attend uh, public health. And I got a, a degree in biostats and a degree in international health. I think now they would call it like, you know, tropical medicine or at that time that, there wasn't that. It was just international health is what that was called at the time. So then I actually wanted to stay and, and actually possibly get a PhD in biostats. My father was very uh, encouraging of me to start medical school. He was like, go to medical school. That's what you've always wanted to do. Don't lose sight. And, uh, and so that's what happened. But in, in that process, getting an MPH, uh, Master's in Public Health, was incredibly um, uh, enlightening for me because it really helped create a path for me that it was not limited to just being a physician. Right, it was being a physician. Usually, we say, you know, as a physician, you're one on one with individuals, whereas as a public health practitioner, you're one on many. And so, I was able to go through medical school with the notion of never was I going to focus on just one; that I was going to focus on the many. Okay. Um, yeah. So we're going to jump right in, like. We're going to talk about structural racism, and we want to hear uh, your point of view of that from, you know, as a medical perspective. And so uh, one of my questions was, uh, as it relates to, I say, underrepresented groups to include African-Americans, Hispanic, the indigenous population, LGBT plus Q, um, and I'm going to add in the heterosexual community when we're talking about the prevalence of HIV and AIDS. And, and just to add context, I added the heterosexual community because I think people are still under the notion that it really primarily impacts only the LGBTQ plus community. So that's really a two-part question. First, if you could address the uh, structural racism in the medical field and how we can how can it be fixed? There is a path. There is a path forward, I, and I am writing a book about that right now. So oh, there is excellent. Awesome. So the 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 first question, and I'm I'm certain I'm going to forget the second one. So please no put it in that one for a second because I love talking about that as well. But the the first question is is something that has been very vexing for me for a long time is trying to understand structural racism that exists in medicine, and. Some of the things I'm going to say are make a lot of people uncomfortable. I've been kicked off of medical. I've been kicked out uh, uh, off of stages before as I've been lecturing doctors talking about this stuff. So I give a fair warning to people that what I'm about to say is going to make you feel uncomfortable. Okay. Especially if you're white and belong to the majority of, 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 of the population. You're going to feel uncomfortable for the things that I'm about to say, which are truthful. And that is, let's focus on something that everybody knows, and let's try to dig deep into it, because they were my colleagues. And let's talk about the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, okay? Now, what happened to Tuskegee? Let's be very clear about it, that they breached a very specific line. Now, in those days, research was very fuzzy. There was no standards. So I'm going to give them a pass on a couple things. One is that you had researchers from the public health department, which in those days, that was the equivalent of being infectious diseases specialist because they managed 
cholera outbreaks, yellow fever outbreaks, right? That was the, that was the public health core, okay? So those physicians were in charge of managing infectious diseases around the country and managing and mitigating their outbreaks. So they noticed that there was a county in Alabama that had the highest rates of, um, of syphilis in the country. So they went down to investigate, check, that's their job, okay? <clears throat> they went to investigate and they tried to explain to people these were all descendants of slaves. Uh, they were mostly uneducated, poorly educated. They were all sharecroppers and they were farmers, okay? And they went down and explained the best that they could what syphilis was. And that was something that they referred to as bad blood. You had bad blood, okay? Now, unfortunately, there's a book called Bad Blood, and unfortunately, there's a second book called Bad Blood right now that was made famous by John Karyoku, who was the writer of, uh, who's an author. He's a writer, journalist in the Wall Street Journal, talking about the whole uh, Theranos scandal, okay? So there's unfortunately two books called Bad Blood, okay? But I'm talking about the bad blood um, that is referring to Tuskegee. So they didn't get consent, and we'll get to that later, but consent wasn't something that was done in the 30s, right? And the idea was to, tr to follow these men about, there was something like, I think maybe 300 in the treatment group or the, the investigative arm and then 200 as a control. So what they did is they got these men, they diagnosed them with syphilis, they figured out who had syphilis, who didn't have syphilis. Um, they did of, of experiments that were consistent at the time, including lumbar punctures and stuff like that. You'll read people who say these were horrific things. They weren't, they were just at the time that was what they did, right? You have to determine if you have neurosyphilis or not. They tried these uh, treatments using mercury and stuff, but none of it was, it was all terrible, terrible medicine at the time, but they were doing what the standard of care was at the time. Okay. So what ended up happening was that they extended that six months until like it, what ultimately became a 40-year kind of study. But where things really went wrong was about, uh, about 12 or 13 years after the start of the study, penicillin was discovered. And it was the definitive treatment for syphilis. No question about it. It was the definitive treatment. And what they did is they withheld that treatment so as to watch what would happen to these men as their body deteriorated with syphilis, okay? So <clears throat> a couple things here, <laughs> of course. Now, to me, this was more than just structural racism, right? Racism doesn't explain it. It's much, much more than racism. And really, in what I'm writing about is that it was a form of dehumanization that exists amongst white physicians and the others, Okay, and in this case, we're talking about black people, black, black sharecroppers, black farmers, black descendants of slaves. This was clearly a dehumanization process. And what this has done is it has allowed me to go back and look at many other aspects of life. And really what I have come to recognize as middle-aged white privileged male, son of, a, of, of two African immigrants, but white appearing physician, very privileged in our society, <clears throat> um, is that America is made up of, um, of a, a multi-class system. We have, but we don't see it. We don't say it. We don't talk about our caste system. And for the rich to be rich 
And for the powerful to be powerful, there has to be underclasses serving them. And that is essentially why, why Tuskegee happened and multiple other uh, uh, elements of Tuskegee uh, that has happened. There is, they, have rep- they have done these trials uh, in prisons uh, without the permission of, um, of course, the prisoners or the consent and, and, and uh, U.S. Excuse me. American researchers have gone abroad to different countries and have done experiments like this as well. So the structural racism that exists uh, in medicine is largely due to what I believe is the dehumanization and how easy it is in our American society to dehumanize others. And we do it so easily. We, I mean, look what's happening right now with reproductive rights. I mean, you know, if there was a true consistency in their thought, we would not be seeing this incredible focus on the fetus. But the minute it emerges, they're like... It's all on you. You know, it's all on you after that. So if there was a true consistency of thought, we would have sex ed in, 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 in schools. We would make sure birth control would be, you know, freely uh, uh, distributed and what have you. No, it's controlling bodies is what it is. And what it comes down to is that this American society is it was an American society that was started by white men that benefits white men. And to this day, we still have an incredible amount of, of paternalism and misogyny that is inherent in our system. So what do we do to, to well, let me just kind of go back to Tuskegee. Um, <clears throat> of course, these uh, men were, were, I believe that they were being tortured because what happens when you find out that you have a, now imagine yourself in the mind of one of these 300 men that had syphilis that were being studied. Um, <clears throat> you now, time has passed. You've become much more educated, and now you realize that you have a disease process, a sexually transmitted infection. Now imagine engaging in intimacy with your spouse or your girlfriend, knowing that you can spread it, and they did. Right? There was something like 40 secondary cases of syphilis. Now imagine if your spouse uh, or significant other has a baby, in which they did, because there was 20 tertiary cases of syphilis. Imagine the torture of wanting, of knowing what it was like, you know, to, to have this disease process um, and not being able to engage in intimacy with your partner, or even doing so, knowing that you're putting her at risk. Then further think about this. Once treatment was done, you had guys then that were trying to join the military or they were leaving the state to go to another clinic, but there was <clears throat> there was a very complicated figure in the story. Her name was uh, Nurse Rivers. Nurse Rivers was kind of the eyes and the ears of the program. She's very controversial because um, she knew what was happening and did not did not. Um, did not speak up about it. And so when um, these guys were trying to go to another clinic to get treated, they were not allowed. The, uh, the government would call those clinics up and say, if you treat these men from Tuskegee, we, you will pull all of your federal funding for your clinics. They were blocked from joining the military as well. And essentially these men had, they were forced by the government, forced by the government to die with syphilis. This is a very painful, painful story. We have heard it. Uh, and, and no matter 
how it's told and who shares it, you know, at the end of the day, um, your term is dehumanizing and, and my term is genocide because it was very calculated when you know that 300, at least 300 people of a particular community has a communicable disease and you don't do anything to stop it and you allow it to continue to spread impacting the immediate community and then offsprings from the community. And I mean, it's just, yeah. So it's, it's genocide. And I'm clear that uh, those who are in power at the, you know, at the top of the food chain have absolutely no regard for um, humanity and, and human life. Uh, especially for those with uh, melanated, melanated skin. So, uh, well, Gene uh, uh, Jean Keller was the one who broke the story uh, in 1972, and her famous first it appeared on the Associated Press, and then it appeared in the New York Times. She's a lovely woman. I talk with her regularly. She really is an amazing person. She was 22 years old at the time. Um, she, um, <clears throat> what she did. And, and there's two points here, Sunny. I wanted to kind of, kind of circle back to what you're saying because I think it was so important. One is what came out of this was informed consent and this whole idea of consent. And unfortunately, it took a very tragic and painful process to get to consent, but we did. This will never happen again in in, in medical uh, uh, research in history because there's so many eyes watching and everybody's trained on it. But going back to what you're saying, Sunny, which I think is the most important point, this story broke in 1972. The study ended two or three days later after that story broke. But it took until the Clinton administration to formally offer an apology. So to be clear, the 70s went by, the 80s went by, and the majority of the 90s went by, and the majority of these men were dead by the time the American government offered an apology. So that means... The entirety of the um, of the uh, Nixon, uh, Ford, Carter, Reagan, and Bush presidencies refused to take any accountability whatsoever. And you're right; th- this was a genocide, and it was a genocide because, as a society, as a country, we it's very easy. There's a there's a very easy dehumanization process that occurs amongst those people who are black. And I'll give you an example. Um, when you look at movies, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, right, you are seeing constantly this denigration of black culture and black people. They're the muggers. They're the house thieves. They're, there's, there's constant, subtle, very, very, very subtle messaging that gets, you know, Reagan's, uh, what was he say? The, uh, the welfare uh, queen. Welfare queen is a great example that is just these subtle very small but these things add up over a period of time and it's this denigration of people who are others i mean now you have a, a you know 
Trump, who started his presidency by talking about rapists and drug dealers that are coming in from Mexico. I mean, that was day one when he announced his presidency. So as a society, we need to do a lot better. So I think Hollywood is starting to do better. I think that you are starting to see uh, you're seeing mixed uh, couples on uh, and that's very normalized. It's not that's not the plot line. It's a very normalized thing to see. You're seeing a lot of ethnic diversity in all of the new shows that are streaming or whatever. And those are and you and and it's not like you're seeing a a blackface who is a Ph.D. in physics. And and that's the storyline. Oh, look at somebody black isn't. No, no, no. That's the that's part of the normal story so that's very helpful that's going to have rippling effects in generations to come but it's not going to help us right now okay the things that we can do right now in medicine is and some of the things that i call for right now is that every medical school needs to have conversations like this all the time and so i'm very lucky i'm at tulane tulane allows me to have these conversations with their students all the time okay um and uh we need to start opening the doors to medical schools immediately to to uh, uh, traditionally uh, uh, um, communities that, that aren't in medical school, right? That we don't see in medical school. So black, brown, uh, LGBT, people who are not represented in the medical field need to be in the medical field right now. My colleague, Doc Griggs, who appears in the animations with me, um, <clears throat> what we talk about all the time is that Eric says that um, it's easier for a young black man to get into the NBA today than it is for them to get into uh, medical school. Uh, and that's pretty profound. Uh, and you have to ask, why do we see such very few black men in, uh, in medical school? I think a large part of it is, again, back to our racist society, how easy it is for us to put black men in jail or to, to, to poke, you know, stop and frisk, this sort of stuff. And if you've got any blemish on your record whatsoever, you do not go to medical school, period, end of discussion. If you have any uh, criminal record whatsoever, but, you know, uh, if you're, you know, a 20 year old carrying a, you know, a joint in your pocket and you get stopped and frisked and you go to jail as a result of that, your career as a physician is gone. So it's reversing of those laws and it's acknowledging that structural racism that exists in our society that we need to stop immediately and we need to fill medical schools uh, with faces and with and and, and uh, 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 with communities that have been held out of medical school and I think that's one of the strongest ways that we do it and then lastly in medical schools we need to have very very strong anti-racist and anti-misogynistic and anti-LGBT policies just like you have a health and all policy where in any policy in, in New Orleans, every policy that, that gets created, there has to be a health element in it. I think that medical schools, clinics, hospitals, insurance companies, anything surrounding health needs to have an anti-discrimination in all policy such that you make that structural change from the inside, not just a, a whitewashing or a spit shine. I'm talking about really lifting the hood and getting into the guts of, of, of whatever system there is so as to really create effective change. When you were talking about policies um, for medical school, I'm thinking about curriculum. Is there or are you aware of any curriculum that speaks to social justice issues in the medical system, uh, biases or, or anything like that, that is a required uh, 
it's a requirement for medical school because we, we we're clear that there is um, discrimination in the medical field. I, you know, I've told my story, uh, my experiences that I've had along with healthcare. And so it's a lived experience for me. And I know that women of color have experienced um, less than effective treatment. We're not heard about our pain levels. I mean, it's just, it's awful. So is there any curriculum or is there a discussion about it if there's not? There, there you know, I, I don't, I can't speak for other medical schools. I, I know at Tulane where I was a full-time professor, now I'm adjunct, um, that there are, there is a social studies kind of class where some of this stuff is, is talked about. It's not talked about enough. The book that I'm writing, I'm hoping is going to be required reading in medical schools because I really come at it, you know, like speaking the truth, you know, not, and again, not whitewashing it. Okay. And again, you know, some of the things that I talk about do make people uncomfortable, but that's okay. It's okay to be uncomfortable, right? Because we want it on the other end. Right. On the other end, we want to get to a better place. Right. We want to get to a better place. So that's um, that's essentially that's essentially the important part there. And again, I give lectures on this stuff on a regular basis, but those classes are electives. So I don't get I get a self kind of chosen group of people who think like I do who want to hear the things that I say because they think, but I will say this, it is the majority of medical students. The, the, you know, the thing that does give me hope are, are the youth because this, the, the younger millennials and the, the generation Z or zoomers um, are really, really, really those individuals that are growing up uh, with a, an extraordinary amount of, uh, of justice kind of embedded into them, um, very sensitive to racial issues, very sensitive to LGBT issues, uh, the least religious of all the generations, uh, the, the, the most that are willing to call themselves atheists. So it, it's, and so those are the students that I see in, in, in medical school. But again, it's the same. I see the same faces in each of my courses and that's okay. I understand. I one appreciate that Tulane lets me talk about this stuff. Cause if I were some, and I'm in the deep South, right? <laughs> so, but you know, I think they recognize the importance of, of talking about stuff like this, but you know, talking about it, but with a constructive, it's not just me taking a crowbar and whacking at the knees of the institution. It's me taking a crowbar, you know, whacking at the knees of the institution, but then also offering crutches, you know, and, 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 and to cast for your knee after I crush it so that we can rebuild it. But this time we're rebuilding it with equity in mind. So how has, and obviously based on your lived experience, your appearance helped you through <laughs> your your education through this this process because your your parents are they have melanin they look like me they have they have darker no, complexions no, 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 or no, 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 no. We're, were Jews that were kicked out of Spain and Portugal okay. and, and, and the, uh, during the Inquisition and then migrated migrated to Morocco. There is a really good point that you are bringing up until maybe about during the pandemic, I finally let my hair grow out, but I've been wearing a Mohawk for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I ride a skateboard every day. That's my main mode of transportation. I play in punk rock bands. So it, you know, 
so I'm not very popular amongst my colleagues. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't visit the golf courses. I don't drive fancy cars, and I um, very much have eschewed that whole uh, uh, element of medicine, that very uh, upper echelon element of medicine, right? And so, yeah, I mean, you know, now I'm starting to paint my fingernails. And I love today, it. I love my wife, too. My wife is taking me to get my our nails done again today, but now I'm going to put red and green for Christmas time, you know? And so, and this drives my. Like, I don't mean to, I'm not doing it to make a statement. I'm just doing it because I'm also reaching out to younger people uh, who will recognize these sorts of things. So my appearance has helped wearing a mohawk for 25 years in the medical field. is not an easy thing, you know, especially, um, but uh, yeah, you know, it, it's, it, it, it has been a struggle in a system that is so tightly regimented, but I have been trying to push up against the edges of that system and trying to get it to recognize that uh, it is incredibly biased. You know, physicians have the strongest implicit bias than all of the, uh, um, all of the professions Tell and me of, of the physicians, the ones that have the least implicit bias are black female physicians the least implicit? Highest are black or highest are white men, white women uh, physicians, uh, Hispanic uh, men, then Hispanic women physicians. Then under that, it's black men, and then there's a huge gap to zero where black female physicians have zero implicit bias, uh, and that speaks so much because this is also sorry, this is also um, a uh, uh, the most vulnerable and and uh, a group of uh, in our society, black women, and so it, it speaks to the humaneness that black female physicians have, despite their lived experience of the racism and the misogyny they experience through their career. They have measurably the least implicit bias that exists, and it just it, it just to me every time I, I say that I always have a little bit of a hiccup um, because uh, 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 because it's just, it's so powerful. Do you want to hear about HIV now? You did this great animated series uh, aimed at educating and breaking down stigma surrounding HIV. They're so great. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is just the work you're doing is so inspiring. So yeah, let's talk about this. Tell us about this series. Talk to us about HIV. What's going on? Tell us about prep and all that good stuff. Yeah. So um, so there's a team of three of us. So there's myself, there's Eric Griggs, Doc Griggs, uh, who's my partner in these videos. Uh, and then there's David Rostin. So David Rostin is a producer. He's a, um, a filmmaker and a very, very close friend. Uh, and uh, we worked at WHIV, the radio station. We're on the board together, what have you. So uh, David is really good about, uh, during lockdown, was meeting with me regularly over Zoom and having drinks and catching up. He's one of these folks that are really good about, like, let's put a date on the calendar. Let's, you know, let's do it. So one day we were chatting, and it was October of last year, of 2020, and uh, I started to ask him, you know, David's a scientist, he's a filmmaker, artist, but musician and scientist. And I was asking him if he knew how the, the, um, the mRNA vaccines worked. And uh, he said, I'm not sure. I am totally understanding everything you're saying. As I was explaining to him, I go, what if we made a cartoon about how these animations, or how these vaccines work? And then boom, that opened up the doors. <laughs> So our first two animations, and you can find them at noisefiltershow.com, noisefiltershow.com. And what we did is we did two videos. The first one is how the vaccine works. And the second one 
was how variants emerge. So if you want to understand Omicron, <laughs> the second video will explain how variants emerge. Um, after that, we were uh, then given uh, an opportunity, we were given more money to see if we can replicate that with HIV. So we, uh, you know, now I'm in, you know, both Eric and I, Doc Griggs and I are both uh, health educators. So we don't, we didn't need to introduce a third character, but we thought it would be really interesting if we elevated the voice of a person of trans experience. Her name is Milan Nicole Cherie. Uh, at the time that we were kicking around the idea of doing it, a lot of the state it was in the spring of, uh, of 2021. That was when a lot of the state houses around the country were passing these ridiculous laws that were discriminatory toward young trans athletes uh, around the country. A problem that didn't really, didn't exist. You know, whenever you ask people to point to where this is, there was ne- governors and states, state legislators could never point to that problem, but they were just, we know what they were doing. It's the dehumanization process that we talk about. It's the structural discrimination that exists in our society. So we thought it would be really important to elevate the voice of a person of trans experience. So Milan Nicole Cherie is a local activist here in New Orleans. She's the one that came up with the hashtag Black Trans Lives Matters uh, that we see trending regularly. Um, And she's also a person living with HIV. Um, And so we wanted her voice to be the voice that explains. So you could see Doc Riggs and I are being goofy and we're, you know, we're constantly goofing on one another. She's constantly having to correct us and she's taking us through her body. In the first video, it's you equals you. And what that essentially stands for is undetectable equals untransmittable. So if your HIV viral load is undetectable, and we, that's something we measure in the, in the clinics all the time, right? That's the number one thing I look at when I see my patients with HIV who are living with HIV is I look to make sure they're undetectable. And once they are undetectable, their viral load is not, they, they cannot transmit that virus to their intimate partner. So we're talking about unprotected uh, intimacy. Uh, so you can have condomless sex. Let's be frank. You can have condomless sex. If you're, living, if you're a person living with HIV, you can have condomless sex with another person and not transmit your HIV virus to somebody else as long as you are undetectable. So in that first video, Milan takes Eric and I through that process of what U equals U means. The second video was PrEP. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And what that means is that if somebody's HIV negative, we can give them a daily medication that will prevent transmission of, of HIV, or rather it will prevent the, the infection from taking hold. So that's called PrEP, and that's one pill once a day for people who are living with HIV who are at high risk Forgetting HIV, so who would that be? That's typically men who have sex with men, um, uh, commercial sex workers, and anybody else who feels like they need to be on PrEP, and we put them on PrEP. In this video, we go inside my body uh, to show how an HIV infection may come in, but because in the video I'm on PrEP, you can see that the uh, there's a force field that surrounds me and the HIV, it was not able to take hold and not able to take an, uh, uh, an infection. And then the third one we did was Little Miss Muffalata. As we know, the, the big, the famous sandwiches are, are muffaladas here in, uh, uh, in, um, in New Orleans. Uh, this was the first script that we actually didn't write because we were exhausted from writing all the scripts. 
So we let Fable Vision, which is the animated house, write this one. So this is why this one is so different from the rest of them. And they used the um, the nursery rhyme, a Little Miss Muffet, as the analogy for something called NPEP. And NPEP is, is post-exposure prophylaxis. So whereas PrEP is kind of like birth control pill, you take it today to avoid something later. NPEP is like the morning after pill where you may have had an exposure the night before, uh, there may have been a condom failure, what have you. And so we can put you on medication for a very brief period of time to avoid transmission or again, avoid the, the, the infection from taking hold inside your body. So those were the three videos that, that we did. Then you mentioned earlier the hepatitis C video that we did. That was my love letter to Two Tone um, and Two Tone Ska. So that and that video was what we wanted to see if we could do a one minute music video and if we can just jam in schoolhouse rock style the most amount of information that would not overload. And you know what came from it was test treat cure. You know, and I think that was the big thing because now with hepatitis C, it is a curable disease. It's the first virus that we can cure. So, but before we get there, we need to test and we need to treat and then we can cure. Now, the probably by the time this goes live, um, we'll be dropping another animated. Uh, and this one is what we think is our favorite. It's the best of them all, I think. This one, we really, um, we got approached by Tulane School of Medicine and they asked us to help them develop an, uh, an, a tool to increase ethnic diversity in clinical trials. So they were very clear. They're like, we really want to reach out, you know, as a result of what happened with the COVID vaccine. And we saw a very slow uptick in, in black communities, particularly, especially here in the South, because Tuskegee still cast a huge, huge shadow that still exists. Um, can you help us come up with some sort of tool that will help us increase ethnic diversity? Um, at, at that point, I was racking my brain trying to see because I really felt like we really needed again a black elder, uh, a black uh, elder um, spokesperson who was female. And so I was kicking around names, um, and then my, it was my wife who came up with the idea of recruiting Irma Thomas. Now, Irma Thomas is a very, very well-known uh, R&B uh, uh, soul singer here in New Orleans. She was, she, the, the pinnacle of her career was in the 60s, but still performs every jazz fest, still performs every French Quarter fest. And so she's kind of like the Aretha Franklin of, of the South. Now, most people don't know outside of the South who Irma Thomas is, but if you heard her songs, you would know exactly. You've heard them a million times, right? So I approached Irma Thomas. Within 10 minutes, New Orleans is a small community. Within 10 minutes, I had her number. And uh, called her. I expected to talk to her husband because that's who usually picks up the phone. She did. And she was very um, uh, intrigued by the idea. She knew my colleague, Doc Griggs, because he's on TV every day. Um, and so uh, she took eight days to get back to us. <laughs> um, but she got back to us and she said the only – she's like, you really think that a two-minute commercial uh, is – or a, a two-minute or three-minute cartoon is going to, to reverse – 400 years of structural racism. You're crazy. I said, no, ma'am, I do not think that at all. She goes, but I do like the concept. And I think that um, if we can improve my grandbaby's chances of having better medications for them, then yes, I will sign up for the project. And she did. And it's a three and a half minute 
uh, video uh, in which we really address head-on uh, Tuskegee particularly. Not We didn't have as much time as we wanted to, but certainly Henrietta Lacks and how can we, how can we uh, ask black and brown communities to sign up for clinical trials without acknowledging the horrors of the past um, and, and trying to make sure that people recognize that, that there are processes in place today that will make it such that what has happened in the past with the Henrietta Lacks or with the Tuskegee just, it is just unlikely to ever happen again and that we really need to start building trust. And before we build that trust, we have to look toward ourselves and recognize the, the terrible things that have been happened uh, in the name of science uh, um, uh, toward black and brown communities. I literally just looked up Henrietta uh, Lack's name because it, I remembered Henrietta, but I couldn't remember her last name. I was going to ask you about that. So thank you uh, for, for acknowledging her. Uh, I wanted to go back to the HIV um, prep pill. And I am part of the community with um, a suppressed immune system as a, as a result of my uh, kidney transplant. So how does that work for um folks within the community of immunosuppressed uh, systems? Is it effective? So that's a really interesting question. I have not seen looking at uh, kid, you know, transplanted or solid organ transplant or even um, stem cell uh, uh, transplants. I, I would say, yes, it's still effective because I don't see any interactions whatsoever uh, between the immunosuppressive medications people who have had solid organ transplants would need to take. So um, I, would, I would say, yes, that, that PrEP is effective uh, because it works on a completely different level than the immunosuppressing medications uh, that people who have had solid organ transplants take. Thank you for uh, responding. And one of the things that I would, it's an ask of mine uh, during clinical trials, and this was a conversation during, during the COVID clinical trials, is that when these clinical trials are taking place, not only the underrepresented communities um, based on ethnicity, but if the clinical trials could include those of us in the community of immunosuppressed systems, because we don't know what will work for, for those in, I'll say, normal system communities may not work for us. So this is an ask of mine for people like me that we be included in these clinical trials so that we can know. Because when this COVID vaccine came out, there were a lot of questions. There were more questions than there were answers as it relates to well, should we take the vaccine? Is the vaccine safe for us? Is it going to interfere with our the lifetime medications that we take? So, yeah, no, I, I hear you loud and clear, and and I think that need is 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 known. Um, I think in clinical trials, <clears throat> the um, they're trying to uh, get uh, you know by including people with known immunosuppressed suppressed illnesses that, and we know that you know that there was a lack of uptake in in the vaccine and so it, early on we saw uh that uh and i have a friend who also has a kidney transplant and so she was in touch with me pretty regularly about what her antibody levels were you know i have an immunosuppressive illness uh, uh i have suppressed immune system i was the first in line and i got mine i got both my vaccines live on television 
So that's how comfortable I felt personally in terms of uh, uh, getting vaccinated, even though I, again, do have an immunosuppressive uh, illness uh, as well. And that being said, from the perspective of pharma, they are looking for the big, they have to cast the widest net, right? And so if they had included initially immunosuppressive uh, people with immunosuppressed, uh, immune, with uh, suppressed immune systems, they would not have seen increases. It would have looked like the vaccine didn't work. Does that, does that make sense? So that's why they had to choose people who had uh, competent immune systems. And then later, go back to that much smaller community who belong in the immunosuppressed uh, uh, community uh, so as to be able to uh, uh, make sure that, that, uh, that they uh, do uh, are, or are able to launch an immune response. Unfortunately, we're seeing that a lot of people with immunosuppressive diseases who take medications that specifically suppress the immune system, that's leaving people vulnerable for COVID. Um, we have, I have a family member who, um, uh, is, I have to take medications. I have to take a monthly infusion. Um, and my monthly infusion does not suppress my personal immune system, uh, for the monoclonal antibodies I have to take. I have a cousin who, um, has a much more severe immunosuppressive illness, uh, and his monthly infusions that he gets monoclonal antibodies does suppress his ability to uh, launch. So he has almost zero antibodies for COVID. So, and that's just the reality of the situation. But, but Sonny, I do hear where you're coming from. And I, again, I think that we are making better strides uh, and we are acknowledging kind of a, a large part. And, and I can't wait for this video to come out, this animation to come out, because it does not only address the elephant in the room, in fact, we have an elephant in the room of this uh, animation. Um, and But what we are trying to do is trying to say we're, we're making a commitment to do better. Very much appreciate it. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about the COVID vaccine and people who are still reluctant to try to take it. And I'm not talking about the people who are conspiracy theorists who think they're putting Bill Gates' microchip in you or that you'll become magnetic. I'm just talking about people that have genuine trust issues like we've been talking about. Where are all my tools as a public health professional? You know, so if you have any advice, because I think it's so important that we get vaccinated. I, I 100% agree. I have, um, at this point, if a year into vaccines being available you're not you're still reluctant to being vaccinated i'm done (laughs) like i appreciate that honestly my my energy level needs to be focused somewhere else like i've done everything i've created cartoons i have we made a song eric and i made a song eric and i were on tv radio we've done, I've done everything that I can do. Um, and if at this point, you know, again, moving, you know, just this morning I was reading an article that, um, if you, if you are in a County that, um, that voted for Trump, you have three times more, that County has three, has three times greater deaths than counties that, that voted for, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, and so those folks, I have like I'm I, I washed my hands of them several months ago. There is no changing them. 
Again, yes, there are the holdouts, uh, and uh, to those people, my heart goes out to uh, because uh, unfortunately, they are putting themselves at great. We're at booster vaccines now. Like we're at a point now where, like, we need to be getting booster vaccines more than anything else, like in the world. Because and and don't even get me started with you know with uh, you know international issues as well. Because yes, of course, the the rest of the world needs vaccines but in terms of we know that there's a six month uh, waning of the immune system and so people do need to get boosters into them right now so if you haven't even gotten your first dose at this point you know if you you're you're lucky that you don't work at a place that's forcing you to do it you're lucky that the airlines aren't mandating it you know and that sort of stuff but who knows what's going to happen moving forward in terms of various mandates uh i i think that mandates are good i think that they're necessary they've always been in place you know you hear about um some of our our uh, boomer younger boomer colleagues uh who will remind us that when they were when the salk polio vaccine came out that there was no writing, getting permission for your parents at home. They marched all the kids into the gym. They gave them a, a sugar cube with a little drop on it, and they ate it, and then they went back to class, and that was how they vaccinated for polio. There was no movement. There was none of that stuff. And so, unfortunately, the COVID has shown me uh, um, that we live uh, – our society is is willing to eat its young, quite literally. We are we have no problems uh, sticking a knife in our own backs, uh, and we have no problems, uh, uh, the, you know, with the misinformation, with the lies, especially the ones that come from physicians. Misinformation, disinformation moves at a rate of six times what real information does, and that's largely due to the fact that you can have sexy headlines. It's not behind a paywall. It's clickbait, whereas science is boring, it's dull, it's slow, it's held behind a, a, a paywall. Uh, you have to have some. You have to have some ability or training to interpret what the studies show. So you can see how misinformation works. And you know, and then we had, you know, a president who suggests, you know, who was pushing hydroxychloroquine, which we knew didn't work. Um, you know, the, the notion, you know, just, and, and then of course now we're stuck in this, uh, uh, what's the, uh, not primaquin, the, uh, ivermectin, uh, this Hagmeyer as well, which is an anti-parasitic. This is a virus. It's like trying to put gasoline into a tricycle, right? It has wheels and moves, so I can see why you would work, but it doesn't work like that. That's just not the I way that analogy. I love that I use that. I love that analogy. I know, it's so incredibly frustrating. I mean, just the fact that all these, you know, we're getting all these new variants and they're just going to keep coming. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. 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 And that's largely because um, uh, we have, we are refusing to vaccinate the globe. Um, well, you know what? Forgive me. I, I am totally on board with Dr. Derry. I have had conversations with people. I'm done. I'm not having another conversation with another person trying to encourage them to get vaccinated. Like, I'm just not going to do it. Now, I'm going to do what I need to do for myself, and then I'll take the necessary protocols or make determinations for my own safety 
given my uh, suppressed immune system. Um, but I'm done having conversations trying to convince people that the vaccine is to not just to their benefit, but to the benefit of our communities and our population, humanity as a whole. Like, so people are concerned. Well, I don't know what's in the vaccine. Well, hell, you don't know what's in the hot dogs that you eat. You don't know what's in the restaurant that's coming. You don't know what's in the liquor that you drink or the weed that you're smoking or whatever it is you're doing. You don't know. And so I go back to when I was in school, when they had the, I think it was like a a six shot vaccine where you lined up literally and they had this thing that they poked. Oh, and it leaves a little mark. Yeah. And so how many of us have those? Mine is probably gone now because that was so long ago. You know, my, my, my (laughs) over the years, but like it was understood you could not go to school without a vaccination record. Like you literally would sit out of school if you didn't have vaccines. So I'm like, okay, I get the evolution, the advancement, the ability to have voices and make choices for ourselves. I'm clear about that. But we have really got to do a better job of sorting through information, right? And not just because, like you said, the sexy headlines, Dr. Deary, that, you know, people are convinced, well, I'm not going to get it because, you know, my sister's brother's cousin's mother-in-law's grandmother is sterile. Like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, did you think about that? So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, and then you had the pop singer recently who said that her her cousin's uh, she her friend's cousin in Barbados ended up you know with yeah. swollen testicles, and they you know like of course that ended up being the case. Um, and so, no, I mean it, it's you know a large part of this also as as, as you were talking, Sunny, I was trying to remember like the evolution of it is is really quite fascinating, and and when we think about how. We have a vaccine now that can prevent um, uh, that can prevent cervical cancer, right? The HPV vaccine, right? And uh, if you give the HPV vaccine, which has almost 100% efficacy, no vaccine has ever hit something like that. It's a three it's a three dose vaccine taken over the course of a year, and if when given to 13, 14, 15, you can take it all the way up until now. I think you know in your uh, late 30s or 40s, I forget which, but um, when given to teenagers. Uh, this has an incredibly effective uh, ability to prevent young women from having to deal with what their mothers had to deal with, which was annual exams, going to the doctor, having to do all that stuff, knowing that you may develop cervical cancer, all of that stuff. Young girls that get vaccinated now don't have to deal with any of that. But what happened was because the right wing and the propensity to sexualize everything were calling for a banning of this vaccine and they were sexualizing young bodies. Okay. And they were saying, Oh, this is going to make them sexually active. And no, it's not people become sexually active because that's just written into our genes. That's just being a human being. The whole point of being a human is to pass on our genes and we do it through sex. So please take your 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 fundamentalism and your extreme thoughts of sexualizing teenagers and get it out of our mouths because we don't need to be talking about that. And that it was a, a 
was significant in terms of uh, of people not taking the HPV vaccine. I think I hopefully we've moved beyond that at this point, but that is kind of where some of that stuff originated. And then we see it here, you know, and, and you, you know, the irony of it is that again, in, in, in counties that voted for Trump have three times the, the mortality rate. This President Trump was the one who invented this. It was under his administration. And when, he took it. And he took it. But insidiously, he took it in private. Right. right? And I guarantee you, he took the booster shot. Oh, yeah. Um, I would be shocked if he didn't. Let me, let me rephrase that. I would be shocked if he didn't. But it, it's, it, it, there is, but consistency of thought isn't always something that is a requirement in our, our modern American society. If consistency of thought existed, this takes us back to where we started at the beginning of the conversation. Not only would people want, would want not to see abortions happen, but they would also then make sure that when somebody had a baby, that that baby would be very well cared for. The full but again, life cycle. Right, full life cycle. It, it, hypocrisy is, is is baked into the system because it allows for confusion and it, it allows for inertia to occur uh, and consistency the uh, consistency of thought is not necessary either. Uh, whereas people like us, uh, scientists, public health people, or just conscientious people would recognize that you you know that that part of being a good person in today's society is making sure that you do have consistency of thought and stepping away from hypocrisy. And I think that we would be a better society if our political leaders could also display some of that as well. This has been such an incredible conversation. And I definitely would love to have you back again. There's so much more to talk about. (laughs) There is. There is. How do we learn more about you and all this great work? And I want everyone to see these videos. Yeah. Uh, so I have a daily podcast called Noise Filter. Um, and that's a, a daily 10-minute podcast looking at public health and COVID from the eyes of social, economic, environmental, and racial justice. And that's, again, Noise Filter. Uh, but all of this that we talked about is at noisefiltershow.com. And our animations are, are, are all there uh, under noisefiltershow.com. Uh, and uh, we try to, we have, we in 2022 wanted to stop making cartoons and start figuring out how to, um, uh, how to get them out into the world. But we are already, we have got four more clients already uh, uh, teamed up wanting us to make uh, animations for them. So we kind of, and invertedly fell into this world of, of animations. And what Doc Griggs and I would love to do is like kind of resurrect the idea of, of uh, schoolhouse rock, but do it, but do it for health. So like our dream would be to like have like a Netflix show that'd be a 10 or 15 minute show geared for children that would explain how uh, autism works, you know, how the genes you know, so you see somebody and they may look different to you, but on the inside, all of our bodies are the same. And we think that if we can show what a cleft lip is or how deafness develops or blindness or any other physical ailment, that that would help decrease the amount of bullying, uh, that would help decrease the stigma amongst children if they saw how inside the body it's the same. But if you explain that the circuitry went wrong somewhere along the way, and this is why somebody has a physical ailment that looks different, or they may 
be depressed or they may have uh, schizophrenia, whatever the case may be, but explain it simply through animations. And we think that that is an incredibly valid uh, tool uh, to help decrease stigma and to help decrease bullying. So we're not there yet. We're, you know, we're baby steps. We're making these small animations in the hopes that somebody will look at them and say, hey, you know, we'd like to do 10 more of these, you know, and yes, we love that idea. So fingers are crossed and that that's the direction we're headed. Well, if you need another public health person with media experience, please <laughs> call me. <laughs> I'd be so thrilled to do something like that. This has been great. Uh, if you want to find me, I'm not actually, I haven't been doing much social media at all, but if you want to just uh, see what my dog blue has been up to, or my daughter was in her, High School Musical, you can follow me at Lisa Davis MPH, mostly on Instagram. And uh, yeah, just just haven't been doing the social media as much. Got to get back to it. And for me, it's it's Sundays on Instagram. And, you know, as I say, uh, weekly, if you want to see what I'm cooking up or you want to see what's going on with my fur babies, uh, Mr. Brown and Max, then check me out. Uh, but our page on Instagram is activeallyship.podcast, and that's where you can find the juice. I forgot. To, I'm, at, I'm at the Dr. Derry on Twitter and uh, Facebook and the other TikToks and the other uh, social medias. I think Instagram. So it's the D R D E R Y, the Dr. Derry. But I do tweet pretty regularly, and I usually tweet stories that surround what this whole hour conversation was about. Thank you so much for listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends and family. This is really important, and we want to get the word out. So glad that you're listening. Please keep coming back. Also, follow us on Instagram at activeallyship.podcast. Thank you so much.